Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and Python charity. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 350. You know, what's really interesting, Stephen, is uh, the people listening to the actual audio recording of this probably won't hear it, but everyone in our live stream can is Steven has like this weird double echo going on, but it was fine for the past 15 minutes until we started recording. It was fine for the past 349 episodes as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I apologize to everyone listening to the, or watching the live stream. Um, hopefully next, there's, there's nothing we can do about it right now. It's like, it's all on the recording software we're using. Yeah. There's, there's a, it seems to be a glitch in their echo cancellation where uh, we can't not get echo due to it. It's it's an odd feedback thing. Yeah, it's really weird. Um, so this is, I promise, the second to last time I'll be talking about this. Until another year, I guess. But November 5th is coming up in two weeks. Um, it's the Extra Life charity stream that I've been running. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know all about this. Why haven't you donated yet? I don't know. Um, but if you haven't heard of it, it is a uh, once a year I stream video games for 24 hours to raise money for children's hospitals all over the United States. Um, I'm going to play two video games this year. I'm going to play uh, Duke Nukem Forever and I'm going to play Aliens Colonial Marines um, for 24 hours starting at November 5th at 8 a.m. in the morning. It's a Saturday going till 8 a.m. Sunday. Um, we'll play one game, finish it, hopefully within like 10 hours or so. Take a little break, cook a pizza. I'll stream making the pizza as well. So if you like cooking shows, you can see the Parker Dolman cooking show. <laughs> um, and then go back and play Duke Nukem Forever to wrap up the stream. Be a lot of fun. Um, it's extra-life.org slash participant slash Parker hyphen Dillman to be a link know and the podcast notes as well and Dillman uh, spelled two l's two n's yes two l's two n's um for past couple weeks i won't say past couple weeks because that sounds like i've been working on it a lot um i'd like to do like a um project with the stream i guess uh like the first year i did it i wrote a a uh python script that basically um, it, it scraped the uh, Steam API to get the achievements for the video game I was playing so I could display what achievements I had gotten and not gotten because it was a 100% achievement run. That was like the goal or the uh, challenge, I guess. On top of beating the games in 24 hours, it was also like a 100% achievement run. Um, and then uh, last year, we I kind of ran out of time, so it was just like a drinking game. Not really interesting, but this year we're doing a drinking game. Plus, I'm writing code, um, so I've been writing a a Python another Python script, but this time it is uh, hooking into the Extra Life, the charity, um, their API, so I can get like live donations and stuff, which doesn't sound very interesting because they have their own plugins for st streamers and that kind of stuff. Um, but what makes mine interesting is it it basically plays a random audio file. At least this is what it currently does. It randomly it basically gets the new donation and plays an audio file, a random one from a big old folder. Um, and so, uh, basically, what it does is just so it sits in the background and just like every so often parses the API, sets up an audio queue, all that good stuff. Um. I'm actually kind of happy how this code is coming out. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to release the code um, publicly at the uh, by this Friday, uh, which will be when this podcast comes out. You can go download it and look at how the code's written. So I kind of want to talk about like the modules that it uses, because this is mostly a hardware engineering, electrical engineering podcast. Um, we don't talk about software a lot. And a lot of people, hardware engineers are like intimidated by like, higher level than C, the program. Mm -hmm. 
and Python is in there. Um, and so, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, I guess. We, Parker and I were, were kind of uh, going over Python a little bit before the uh, before we started recording. And, and I, I feel that um, Python is really... <clears throat> Python's really easy to grasp as a hardware guy because it is so tangible in terms of I want X, I I go and do Y to get to X basically. Like Python is like you can you can think of your end result and find a thing that does that and then just plug it in and go. Uh, that's at least been my experience with it. And and so hardware hardware engineers in the in the kind of realm that Parker and I've been in, which is, you know, a lot of manufacturing aid and things. I think it's fantastic for that. Anything that makes um, for easy coding and easy ability to create, I guess, pr uh, programs, I suppose I, we can call them programs, scripts in a way that aid in production and manufacturing. Python is fantastic for that. And it's the, I think one of the beauties of it is how fast you can get to that end result like you have the end result in your in your head python probably already has 10 different ways to do it very easily and very quickly mm -hmm. yeah it's just about kind of finding the right building blocks right and then putting the right glue logic together to make those building blocks work correctly yeah yeah, absolutely. Uh, like just doing uh, file manipulation and data manipulation is incredibly simple in in um, in Python. And I've found in contract manufacturing, uh, there's a lot of need for that. And Python just makes it really quick. I've also um, dealt with a handful of customers that write their whole test suite in Python. And it, uh, it's really easy to work with. So I, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm I'm uh, uh, praising it a lot for for how easily i think it works with and a hardware engineer's mindset mm -hmm. yeah i use it a lot for test engineering um but uh going back to this script that has nothing to do with manufacturing <laughs> um so uh the first thing it does is is it checks the extra life api because that's where all the data comes from um so if you go like google extra life api you can get there's like a GitHub with like all their endpoints that you can request data from. Um, it's kind of interesting because it's more of a generic API. There's something called, what's it called? Donation, donor drive. So Extra Life is built on this other set of software called donor drive. So. I think a lot of donation services or uh, uh, services might not be the right word, but um, events, I guess, donation events are built on this donor drive software stuff. And so the API is actually donor drive and you just have to like massage the URL to make it work with extra life. There wasn't really an easy way to figure out what that extra life URL was because it was like use donor drive and it has like this big API string like stuff to hit and it makes it sound like all you do is replace donor drive with like extra life in like the URL request that didn't work. And so it was kind <laughs> of like, of course not. It was kind of figuring out what that was. Hmm. And um, did you just do trial and error? A little bit. <laughs> Um, it was extra hyphen life dot org slash API was what ended up being. Mm. Um, and so you, to get that request, I was use I use the request module, which is a very good um, uh, Python module that makes basically these API requests very easy to use. Uh, makes it easy to set the header information now. This API doesn't require require any authentication. Doesn't require any um, weird header information like what the what your um, HTML request would be. The, all the header information. It doesn't require any of that. You just kind of like go. You just tell requests, "Hey, go to this URL. Give me the JSON back." Hmm. And yeah, it does it really well. So you get that back. And I, I hit all the endpoints at the beginning. So this is me trying to figure out how to use it, right? Is I basically just 
copied all their endpoints and just had the script hit hit each endpoint, dump the what I got back out right into a big old file so I can just look at it. And what's interesting is there isn't really an endpoint for new donation. You just get donations. And so when you request donation, like the endpoint donation, you get a whole array back of all the donations. Oh, um, but you, but 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 you know, if you didn't have any pre- uh, previous knowledge of that list, they would all ju- it would just be a, a list of numbers. Yeah, just a list of yeah, it would just be a whole bunch of donations um and you don't know which ones are new or which ones are old cuz you it basically, let's say you just started a script up from scratch. The script wouldn't know. So how right. do how do we make the script persist, so to speak, right? So do you just have like two files? One that's yeah. So you can have a file. Um, so yeah. you can open up a file, read it. But like, there's a lot of work in like reading in a file and then reading in the data structure correctly and all that stuff. Well, there is another module called Pickle. Of course there is. <laughs> and Pickle is a module that allows you to make a local file by just taking a data structure and just saying, I want to pickle that data structure into this file. So basically you open a file and get the file pointer, pass it to Pickle and say, Pickle, put this array in this point. I'm, basically what I'm doing is I'm, I pulled the, da- the donation list, get all the IDs out, and then I put the IDs into the pickle module and then jar up that that array so you so can al- you can always just or on a regular interval you can do a comparison against your pickle jar yeah so whenever i pull the api i get all the new i get all the donation ids i unpickle or un or open the jar of pickles mm. so to right. speak and look at all the ids and go is there any ones that are new and if there's a new id you put the new id into the jar lock it up and you go hey now we got a new id and then what we do is we go hey time to make a audio clip because that's what the script does the script goes if there's a new audio if there's a new donation play an audio clip so it goes to the, uh to play the audio clip now to to <laughs> to uh play the audio i thought i was gonna because ha- like in the past when i've written like c software to do this um I would have to like call like VLC like or like a media player, right? Um, well, Python has its own kind of built-in thing. I don't, actually don't even know what it is using on the back end, but it's called um, Play Sound. There's a Play Sound module. Of, I don't. I, d- I didn't look anything past that besides it worked the first time I did it. <laughs> um. Of what kind of what is it using on the back end? I don't know. It doesn't open up like VLC or media player. It just plays it. Okay. Where what I was saying is like in the past, like I would yeah. write C and you have to go, okay, here's the file path to VLC. And then then basically command line VLC and pass it like a file parameter. Mm-hmm. And then it opens up and then you have to check to see when VLC closes to make sure you're done. Yeah. Pain in the butt. This is just like boom done. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Just happens. Play files. Okay, but how do we rant? How do we know what audio file to play? Well, I had a audio file or audio folder that I just put all my clips in. Right. Um, Python makes it really. There's a. Um, like, I, there's not a really a specific module that's that you have to get it's like the OS module um, is built into Python makes it you can do this, but you could basically look into a folder and just get all the file names in there. And then you take all those file names, put them into an array. Now you have an index array and then you randomly generate a number and then go and go, okay, made five, pull index five from the array, boom, good to go. Um, so that's how we basically automatically parse a folder and we don't have if we want to add another clip you just put a clip in the folder and you don't have to do anything it just automatically gets all that information um so we randomly generate a a a, a number 
and play a file. But the problem with randomly generating it is it doesn't feel random. That's the problem with random numbers. It doesn't feel (laughs) random. Well, explain. I'm I'm curious what you mean by this. It's like, think about flipping a coin. Okay. There's a a quarter. Um, It's 50-50 heads or tails. Every single time, it's a random random dissociated event. So each flip is a 50-50. Okay. Mm -hmm. Meaning that you can have 10 tails in a row. Right, and it's still the next flip is still fifty fifty, and it can still be fifty chance tails. So when you are flipping the coin and you get a lot of the same result in a row, you go and your, your brain's like, "This is is this coin really fifty fifty? Oh yeah, right, right. Okay. Right. So if our script played the same audio clip in a row multiple times, it would not feel really random. And this is actually I. I remember hearing this. I didn't, I don't know if this is true, but I heard Apple ran into this same problem when they first implemented their random slash shuffle feature. Um, and what they did is they basically made it so it random wasn't really random anymore. <laughs> it's I think it's what they call it random. <laughs> I think that's what they called it shuffle now. Okay. I think there's more to the algorithm than this, but essentially it was, it made sure it wouldn't, play the same audio or music multiple times in a row. And so it would keep a buffer of what was recently played and make sure what was next wasn't on that list. Yeah, so so in other words, it's not equally weighted every single time random happens. Yes. And so we do that same thing. We ba- I basically put together a a rotating buffer. It's think about just it's just an array of strings. And that has the file name. So it goes, hey, generate a number and look up that number and get the file name for it. Make sure that file name is not in this list. This, uh, the shuff- I call it the shuffle list. Make sure it's not in the shuffle list. If it's not in it, play it, add it to the shuffle list. If it is in the list, generate a new number, do the whole process again. And then how the shuffle list works, because if you think about it as a... If you're writing C, this would be super easy. You'd have like a bit shift. You just bit shift, you know, a a register and the oldest thing would pop off, you know, would rotate off the list and then you'd, you know, you would you would XOR your new bit onto the front end, right? Mm. Um Python doesn't Python does have bitwise stuff, but we're not doing bitwise. We're doing strings. Right, an array of strings, and so I used a module called what was it called? I wrote it down here. Ah, the collections module. So the collections module gives you some more powerful like stack operations, um, like uh, push and pop, like for a FIFO first in first out stack. Um, that stuff is kind of built into Python, but collections gives you probably way more stuff than I'm talking about, but it gives you more powerful uh, stack operations. Like you can rotate a stack now. So mm-hmm. what we can do is we can, we can, if uh, when we need to add something to the stack, we pop the oldest thing off. Cause that now that's a valid, you know, clip we can play in again. And then we rotate the stack, right. And then push in a new, uh, the new thing that we just played into that stack. So it gives us more stack operations. Um, so that's that's the bulk of it, right? But we got one more thing. Multi-threading. <laughs> Hang on. But b- before we go there, I got a question for you. Uh, first of all, I love the fact that you're going into so much depth and you spent all this time doing this the the question here is why not just have all of your your audio files in a folder and just play them sequentially as you get that and then just wrap around and play them like that's boring 
<laughs> I thought it, I thought it might be something of that sort. Uh, like I love the whole randomness and the shuffle and the ensuring no, no two are played. Actually, what is the minimum amount of donations it would take for your code to play the same file uh, the next time? Like, would it be minimum? You know, would be ten. The, okay, so it would that's have assu- to, and that's assuming that's that's assuming that the. Uh, it landed on. Let's say you 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 donated once yeah. and it played the audio clip one. Yeah. You donated nine more times. Yeah, right. That and fills then up, randomly it picked that same randomly one again. picked number one again. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can adjust that though. I um uh, I have a text file with the configuration, so you can adjust how big or small the shuffle like array shuffle is. size. <laughs> yeah, shuffle size. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. So given given that it can't happen. You know, it, ten is the minimum amount of numbers. Well, it can be, you can make it one technically. Well, I, currently it's ten. Yeah, it's currently how, it's ten. how many audio files uh, do you have in here? Uh, I think around forty right now. Forty. Okay, cool. So as you add a file, the chance goes down. Well, of course, because it's also the random se- selection. Um, also, make sure like when it gets the file list, it counts how many there is so it's a one out of whatever size how many files are in there i guess you're probably limited to the windows file size like how many files you put there and i know you can put a lot of files in a folder in windows now i suppose given how your how your thing works when you first fire everything up the randomness is all your files because you don't you're not excluding any so that's the least probable to get the one file like if you're trying oh, to have you're trying more to get play, one yeah okay the, uh, yeah. It, it's better to donate later if you want that well exact- you gotta make sure it's yeah if it's not in your buffer or right. yeah it's not in your buffer but then again nobody knows what the audio files are so donate and you'll find out yeah donate and you find out <laughs> um so multi-threading yeah why do we need multi-threading for such a simple script it's going to do more eventually but these things need to happen periodically, right? The API checker, um, I think it's called like check donation, uh, check for new donations, I think is what the function's called, um, has to happen periodically. You can't just run it full bore all the time because the API server would not be happy with you slamming it you know, with multiple quests oh, per second. Oh, it'll lock you out real fast. Um, yeah, some of them, some API endpoints will throttle you and like stop you. And so if you check the documentation, it says like once every 15 seconds is like the max you they want you to request. I set it to 20 seconds just to be, you know, nice, I guess, to the server. Um, you can adjust that number as well. Like it's like you can just adjust that number to whatever you want, how quickly or slow you want to do it. And then the audio is the same way. The um, if you got two donations at once, let's say in that twenty second span that the API fired off, you'll get two new IDs. Well, you don't want to play both audio clips back to back because it would just sound like a jarbled mess. Um, like you know, basically slamming let's say two sentences together without a pause. Oh, you saying playing them concurrently at the same time? Well, it, no, it won't do that. Right. I mean, you could set it up that, but oh, it's not. you're you're saying just have them like immediately. The, the second one starts at the at the end of the first. Yeah, so yeah. you don't want to do that. And so, what the the audio engine runs every thirty seconds. Um, just you can change that number to make it whatever. Thirty seconds seemed to be good for when I was testing it. Um, so how do these two communicate? Right, because they're both their own threads. Um, so I use a, uh, I like, like what you would do in, uh, let's say embedded, you would have like a mailbox, right. That your, your interrupt talks to Mm -hmm. a a global variable, basically that your, 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 uh, your, um, uh, interrupt would go look at modify and then come back. Right. Or it's getting, you know, or your main thread is actually looking at the mailbox for an interrupt putting data there. So it, it does something similar. There's a global variable called 
like new donation. Like new donation count, I think is what it is. And so when the API runs and actually detects a new donation, it increases it by one. The audio thread looks as a, hey, is that number greater than zero? If so, subtract one, play the audio clip. But because you're running multiple threads and now computers have multiple cores and they run really fast, you can get into these conditions, these race conditions where like both threads are trying to access the same thing at the same time. So Python multi-threading, the threading module, has built-in locks. And so you can initiate a lock and basically lock out that variable when one of them is is using it. And um, what happens is when, let's say, one thread is is writing the plus one and the other one go is trying to look at that variable or subtract a number from it, it actually will pause until that is unlocked and then it can do its thing. Hmm. So it's kind of like a blocker, but you know, all you're doing is adding one or subtracting one from this variable. So it's fast. You're not right. really blocking for too many cycles, right? Right. Okay. Can you, um, in that module, can you adjust priority? Like which threads are the most you important? You can, yeah. Cool. Uh, mine is first come, first serve. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense <laughs> in your application. Yeah. You can definitely prioritize it. Well, I think actually with this implementation of locking, you can't. Because if it's locked, it doesn't know what the priority of that lock is. Got it. It's just whoever got to the lock first, they win. Yeah, whoever got to the lock first. Yeah. Which makes sense. So you just have to wait for the lock to unlock. And then you can lock it and then do your thing and then unlock. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll upload the code. Um on to my github and so people can look at it and um so what i'm going to try to do next is i want to play graphics when this thing fires off um so we have officially the mac web engineering podcast has officially switched over from our broadcast software xsplit which is what we use to live stream this podcast we moved over to open broadcast software i basically spent the last evening like figuring out it's OBS, figuring out how OBS works because it is completely different than XSplit. Um, it's like the difference between DipTrace and Eagle. Um, XSplit is like DipTrace where it has like everything built in. And then OBS is like, there's a zillion plugins that make everything work. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I was like, I, I need a countdown timer. I, I was wondering where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I was like, I need a countdown timer to, cause like when we start the stream, we have some music in a bumper video and we have a countdown timer. It's like stream starts in blah, blah, blah minutes. XSplit just had, there's a timer functionality in built in. You just like add it. Right. OBS doesn't have that. So you have to go find a, thing to make that work mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of plugins they have their own official plugin list so like it's all like vetted and safe from a security standpoint it was just annoying <laughs> i guess uh. um now what's interesting though is xsplit also can a lot has like plugins and stuff so it's not like that limits xsplit um xsplit's just trying to be uh ready from more open ready. box yeah it's more ready out of the box i should yeah. say yeah. um well so we'll see how good um obs works um hasn't dropped any frames or anything yet so it's supposedly more efficient um than xsplit we'll see um maybe after the 24 hour the the extra life stream I'll, I'll use OBS, and if OBS craps out or whatever, I'll switch to XSplit on the fly. But if that goes well, then I'll probably just cancel my subscription to XSplit and save, you know, my $10 or whatever hell it costs now. <laughs> um, oh, let's do a demo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, this is going to be weird because I don't know if I'm going to be able to see it. I'm going to have to watch the stream, the Twitch stream. So I think I'll be a, a few seconds behind here. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to give this audio clip to Josh, our editor, because uh, it won't actually get recorded either. Um, so you can see the code. Let me just cover my face so I can, I can record your reaction. <laughs> Uh, so here's all the code. Not a lot, but it's all in these functions that do everything. But oh, yeah. What I did is I del- so um, I deleted the temporary file. Well, not temporary, the temporary, uh, the pickle file. I've deleted it. So it will read the donation IDs and be like, oh, there's new donations. So it'll oh, play okay. some audio. And hopefully it plays some PC um, clips, like because it's it's all Duke Nukem quotes and there's some curse words in there. <laughs> this this could randomly be not safe for work. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Let's see. Okay, so it cre- so when it doesn't ha- it doesn't have the uh, file, it will. Um, it will actually generate the file for you. So you don't have to like create the text file that it's going to dump the information into. Cool. Um, so we got Hail to the King, baby. And now it's going to wait 30 seconds to play the Nice. One. Okay, yeah. I, I, like I said, since I'm watching the stream, I'm a handful of seconds behind. That's awesome. So it's going to do the next one. I think there's three donations in there because I, I made um, a couple donations just so I had data to test with. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so it played who wants some dot MP3. I'm hoping that the uh, next one is still PC or safe for work. <laughs> and it, it didn't. It did not. <laughs> oh, so good. Yeah. Uh, okay. And the best thing is, all you have to do is just keep adding more clips into that folder, and it just works. I I I have a thought here um, that that I think could could make this a little bit more, I guess, friendly to the listener. Because when it detected a new donation, it just plays the clip, and and that's just like whoa, okay. I think I think something that could be cool. Consider this: um, have a an audio clip that is like a kaching sound or a ding sound or something like that that plays before every audio clip. Whenever there's a donation, it plays that ding. There's a slight pause, and then then the audio clip, and that way everyone knows, oh, that was a donation, and then the unique audio clip plays, as mm. opposed to just like instantaneously having Duke Nukem be like, I don't know, bubble gum or whatever he says. Well, like, that's why I want to do. The idea is that I'll have a graphic slide onto the screen. Like I want mm, like Duke Nukem okay. to be, like I want like a JPEG of like Duke Nukem like yeah. slide out on the screen, and then like. It, it be, it'll say like new donation and then he'll like say his line and then slide back off the screen. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so something, something that comes right before the audio clip that like lets everyone know that a new donation came in and now you can listen to the fun audio clip. Like if there was a ding and then Duke slides in and then he says the thing that he says and slides out, that's yeah. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Ha, I like it. That's, that's really awesome. Um, I did, I started playing. I don't know if I'm going to do this. I was playing around with what's it called? It's called Fake You. It's a text to speech deep fake like API. Yeah. And I tr- I was I was playing around with it because I I was like, whoa, what if? And I found someone who made a Duke Nukem like. Text to speech, a voice faker. Vo- uh, yeah, 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 exactly. And the problem is, it takes too long because it'd be awesome to be like, because I can pull the who, like, if you put your name in there, 
in your donation, it, I can pull the name out too and pass it to that API and be like, Stephen Craig has donated blah, blah, blah money to Extra Life. And then he'll yeah. say, here to kick ass, chew bubble gum and all out of gum. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, if I can figure out how to make that faster, I will totally do that. But it seems that it's all on the processing end on their server. Um, right. So, and they probably have a queue up system. It, like when I was like, I was like a thousand people in queue, and I'm like, uh, yeah, sucks. right, right. So, I think it took like seven minutes to get that. So I was like, oh, that's not good. Because I could totally do it on my end. I can do a text to speech on my local computer. And it'd be really fast, but it won't sound like Duke Nukem. And I'm right. like, yeah, that's not a point then. Right, right. That would be really cool if Duke called out your own name. Yeah. Yeah, it would be Maybe. legit. But just having it pop up in text on the on the screen is plenty good. Yeah, so all we want to do is basically Duke slides out and then you have like a speech bubble that says new donation from and then that person's name would be in the speech bubble. Yeah. And then Duke says a line and then slides back off. Doesn't Twitch have something of that does all of this already? I mean, you're not streaming on Twitch, right? I'm I'm streaming on Twitch. Okay. Um, no, duh, duh, yeah, that's right. You're doing Twitch, but I, I doesn't Twitch already have a whole system for this? I mean, minus the whole extra life stuff. It it has a donation thing with audio and images. Yeah, and like extra it. life has a a progress bar that will make a a chime when it detects a new donation. And like it'll update the progress bar on your goal, but it doesn't randomly pick a Duke Nukem quote. Right, 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 right. I, I, I yeah, I like how you, you, you're because you wanted to do that. You're doing it all from scratch. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's fun. Awesome. I'm learning about new modules um, yeah. and building up a whole like multi-threaded Python script that just plays Duke Nukem quotes. It's awesome. So I gotta get the next part, which is like. Figuring out how to make it work with OBS and like do graphics. Like, I don't know, like, I gotta figure out how that works. Cause I think I can make like scene transitions that, so like I can make like a JPEG slide on screen and then I can trigger that with a Python script. I gotta figure all that out. That's like the next thing to do. I feel like all the triggering and everything's probably pretty easy. The, the uh, getting transparencies and JPEGs and all that's probably gonna be the harder part. Yeah, yeah, probably. We'll see. So after the podcast, that's what we're going to work on. Nice. So no video games tonight. <laughs> yeah, you, you, yeah, the clock's ticking on on getting all this done. Yeah, two weeks now. <laughs> well, less than two weeks. Yeah. So very cool. Yep. Um. So last week we were talking about um these new Texas Instrument chip fabs that are being built here in Texas. Um, and we were talking about what kind of degrees you would need to like work there. Cause it, it's something like ridiculous of like 600,000 jobs are going to be created by that, like chips act. I think that's what the number was. It's, if that's the wrong number, then I apologize, but I think that's what the number was. I th- you, it was in the ballpark. I think it was like six thirty, but yeah, ballpark. Yeah. And that's a lot of skilled technical you know, STEM jobs, basically. Um, and we're like, electrical engineering is going to be in high demand for that. And this generated actually a lot of discussion in our, our Slack channel, which is macfab.com slash Slack. And um, basically, it's going to require every discipline of engineering or practically. Um, this is going to be mechanical because there's going to be a lot of design and maintenance of, of equipment and um, building... Uh, um, screens and that kind of stuff. And then there's a whole bunch of, apparently it's mostly chemical engineers, um, at least in the process of, for the, for the process. Yeah. For the actual process. Because designing the masking chemical bath process is the, is all chemical engineers, apparently in the, uh, in the industry. And then uh, electrical is pretty much on the, design and testing and validation. So they actually don't really have too much to do with the actual manufacturing of the chips. <laughs> they just make Which sure they work at the end. They do all the work. At, they do a lot of work at the beginning and then a lot of work at the end. Yeah. Yeah. 
but in the gap in the gap in the middle is mechanical and chemicals pretty much this is interesting i bet you, you do have the materials like materials uh, and well it's not material engineer but the material section is probably electrical and chemical together um like what doping you're going to use and that kind of stuff yeah i we did a lot of that in school i I did semiconductor physics as i focus in um in my double e degree and uh you know at, at that point it was less what you would think is of as uh traditional double e stuff uh it was kind of funny because it ended up being a lot fewer calculations. Like if you were trying to hit a particular thing, then yeah, you had to, uh, you, you did a, a bit of the rigorous calculations, but at a certain point, it just all turned into like process variables. So it was time, it was temperature, it was, uh, like what gas you were using and things like that. And I, and I thought it was funny because in some of the labs where we actually worked with Silicon, it, it, it ended up boiling down to they handed us like a, a sheet that had a bunch of different colors on it. And it was like, how thick of an oxide layer did you grow? And you just hold the sheet up and it was like, it looks like this shade of red. And that means this many nanometers of oxide. I grew. You know, like it was less calculation and more of like that kind of stuff. It's funny because in 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 that realm, it's super, super controlled. But in a lot of ways, a lot of the process variables have a good chunk of tolerance on them so you know if you left your silicon in a furnace uh you know an an extra little bit like it wasn't going to hurt anything uh you just you know whatever you were doing at that current moment you just did it slightly longer uh you'd still get a good result at the end of the day so i mean obviously there's a significant difference between like a full fab versus like a college lab and things but uh the, I, I did find it interesting how much slop was available to the engineer because i thought it was way more precision than well than it the chip was. that you made well but but i mean we studied we studied uh more intense stuff as well okay yeah the chip i physically made had a ton of slop in it <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah no it was it was I don't know. That, that was fun. That was really interesting. I, I always say that that was one of the best parts about double uh, E school was just being able to experience that because that's not something you would get to do outside of school unless you work specifically in that realm. But then again, you know, we were we've been talking about, you know, 600,000 jobs are available or, or will become available. So uh, if that interests you, it uh, looks like there's the opportunity has the opportunity for sure within the next two years. Yeah. Uh, Metacolin in our Twitch chat says they also tweak every knob a little every time to see if it improves anything. A lot of semiconductor process stuff is found via brute force trial and error. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Like so much of the stuff just feels like they tried every possible thing and was like, this is the best way to do it. So do it this way. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it, I mean, not some of it, a lot of it can be directly calculated but when it comes down to chemical processes a lot of it is that way where it's just like okay well we know if we put this type of atmosphere in a furnace and we hold something at this temperature for this long then this process happens mm -hmm. uh and the way you learn that out is just by you know holding one variable and uh, holding all your variables and stepping one and seeing the result yeah because it could be like the chemical equations and let's say you're talking about atmosphere. Let's say an inert atmosphere, right? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of elements that would give you an inert atmosphere, like carbon dioxide would be, well, depending on what you're doing, can be inert. Um, nitrogen, argon. So nitrogen and argon are, are noble gases, so they're inert. But they have different sizes of their molecules, or is it molecule for one, or is it element size, or atom uh. size? I guess it would be an, an atom size. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I can't remember what the, a, a singular, like CO2 is a molecule. But yeah. Not, but if you're just like, if you're just talking like argon, then it's just an atom, right? Yeah. Just an atom. Anyways, but they're different sizes. Right. And so they would physically, even though they're inert, so they're not actually going to interact with your equation, they might interact with how they're physically shaped like not well not shape but their sizes are different 
So that could be like an experimental thing to figure out, hey, you know, if we use a different inert gas, it does this other thing slightly better. It's it's like uh, it's like welding, you know, uh, with TIG welding, you use argon, right? Like, could you TIG weld with nitrogen? They're both uh, technically, they're both I think, yeah, noble gases. Well, the thing is, they 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 change the temperature of your weld considerably. Uh, I don't know the whole process behind it. I just know that nitrogen and argon respond differently. Yeah, because if if you could get away with using nitrogen, you would, because nitrogen is a lot cheaper than argon. <laughs> a lot cheaper and a lot easier to get. Yeah. So I wonder if... So there's something else in that whole argon-nitrogen thing, at least with welding, that they're inert noble gases, but they react differently to that that arc right and 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 what i've experienced and, and learned about with semiconductor processes like every process is like that so cool well um there's there's one last uh short topic i want to cover um something that i had actually we we touched on about a year ago uh and and um it's come up recently for me in my in my day job that I'm curious uh, people's thoughts on this or people's experience with it. And and basically what it is is estimating your project time. So say your your manager comes up to you and says, "Hey, we've got X Y Z project. Uh, can you estimate how long this is going to take you I'm to complete?" I'm the absolute worst at this. I, I I too am not very good at it. I'm getting better at it, but I'm curious what people's strategy are for doing this. And in particular, I, I have an example of of something that I just finished yesterday that was a a large uh, PCB. So I'm this project isn't even like the entirety of the project. It's just a PCB layout. And in fact, this project that I just did was a revision to a previous PCB layout. So it's like subsections of a project right this one revision took me about 55 hours of work to do um perhaps a little bit longer but or a little shorter i i, I estimate about 55 I, I clocked in my hours and that's my guesstimate about 55 hours to do a revision on a pcb which seems like a long time in my head but also like i look back at my work and i was like it's not like I was messing around. I was literally working all of those 55 hours to get this done. Sometimes PCBs take a while. This was an eight layer board with about 1600 parts on it. Tons and tons of duplicates on the board. Uh, so in other words, like you, if you route one thing, you have to route seven or, or 16 other things in a similar way which seems easy, but also ends up being difficult because you're having to put like multiple chunks of signals mm -hmm. across the board, blah, blah, blah. Um, and this was a, a pretty hefty uh, revision. We, we completely rerouted or changed all the power. We changed a ton of uh, ICs on it. So basically I started with, I, I restarted the board with the general idea of locations of things and just rerouted the entire thing. But it got me thinking, it was like, okay, I, I told my boss when I would have it done. And I ended up having to work some weekends to try to just hit when I told him I would have it done, which I don't have a problem with. But I was like, well, what if I had, what if I had estimated better and then didn't have to work a weekend? And uh, so uh, I guess when it comes to PCB layout, I'll just, we'll, we'll filter it down a little bit. What are the things that impact timing on doing a board layout? I mean, there's just it's a massive amount of variability between things, but I, I, just kind of boiling it down and making it simple, just pure number of components that you have to deal with adds time to it. But within that subsection, it's how difficult each component is in a way. So if we're just talking about like an 0603 or, or just a passive component, like there's a certain amount of time you have to physically click and put it mm -hmm. in a place, right? But some components are like, you know, switch mode controllers or things like that that have very specific data sheet requirements. And, you know, it might take a few seconds or, or half a minute to drop down a passive, but you might spend 30 minutes, an hour, two hours on a, on a, even an SOT like six package because you're following all the data sheet. Uh, yeah, making sure it's the, it. you're copying the, uh, 
recommend layout and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, right. So like there's a massive amount of variability in in the component section, but also uh like components like memory or things like that where you have to do very or or USB uh doing differential traces or snake traces for timing and things like that. All of that requires it's not just like hey, this pin goes to this pin on this other chip. Like you have to put a lot of thought into each one of those. Uh the other things uh, that come to mind that can Increase time is your layer count. You know, a two layer board's probably not going to take as long. Well, as it could decrease layer. it too. It could. It could. Right. But if you're doing, let's say you're doing a four layer um, and your two enters are ground and your main power rail. Well, yeah. you just eliminated a lot of work on your power rails for routing. Right. Uh, duplication's another thing. Let's say you, like, take the Octoprober, your project where you had multiple. ICs uh, for for routing um, thermocouples or or temperature probes yeah. and things like that. I, you know, I get a little bit anal and I like to have, you know, if I have, you know, multiple duplicates of circuits, want I want the them same. to be routed the same. Well, that takes a ton of time to yeah. to make them all the same because uh, I, I try my best to make all the components be in the same X and Y axes and mm-hmm. make the traces be mostly the same, mainly because I, I don't want the performance to be different between all of my channels. Well, that takes a ton of time to, to do. Um, and then two things that I have picked up from doing just a handful of years of PCB layout Always give yourself a rest day and then give yourself a cleanup day. Uh, and when I say day, I mean a full eight hours if this is a you know a sizable board. Uh, a rest day meaning like if, if you did your final click and you ran your DRC and your board says, you know, no good errors, to go. good to go. It is not good to go. Sleep on it. Come back the next day and review everything. Like no, look so at I, everything. When I looked at rest day, I act, what I do is... I work on enough of another project at work. Okay. Yeah. So I have a full work day and then the next day, so full day later, go do your cleanup day is what you're talking about next. Yeah. And then um, clean everything up, go through it again. And then I like, I, if I have time, sometimes you don't get this, but I like to do another, another day. You don't work on it. Come back again and do a review day. Yeah, yeah. That's if you have time, because you basically spent a whole week. That's like a whole week of review and cleanup on your board. Sometimes you don't have that time, though. Sometimes you don't have that time. But if you have the ability, like, say, if you're being asked how long this project is going to take and you build those days in, Mm -hmm. then it's just expected. But if you if you fail to do that, then your project's late and uh, and and it becomes troublesome. The having having your mind focus on something else and come back and see your work like so many times you'll catch errors or or you'll just find better ways to do things better ways, but mostly catching like little tiny things like, oh, I forgot to like chamfer that edge exactly or or like um, or like, oh, that silk screen is on the pads there. Stuff like that. Little tiny things that. When you rush, you won't catch. So you have to force yourself at the end to take your time. And right. My way of doing that is to go do something else for for a work day and then come back to that project and go, okay, I forced myself to not think about this for 24 hours. Let's go look at it now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's super valuable. And uh, you you'll be surprised at how much like you'll find and yes. it's just that's your cleanup day. Go and clean up all that crap. And then if you have more time above and beyond that, I like the idea of review day, like you said. Yeah. Uh, even beyond that, but but and you don't need a, you usually don't need a full day for review day. It's a couple hours. Yeah. But it's like, you know, generate your files, look at all the Gerbers, make sure everything looks fine, that kind of stuff. So, so I, I think I said this is the last time we talked about this, and I think that this is important. Unless it's the simplest of boards out there, there is no board, in my opinion, that that is a one day board. Like, it, like I said, unless it's the simplest of stuff. Like, if if you have a few parts and you're just three, super four parts, you can yeah. crank. Yeah, if you can just crank it out and just be done and be super confident. But if it's anything above, like the simplest of boards, 
it's worth coming back to the next day after you've gone home, you yeah. you ate some food, you slept, you come back. It, like it's it's worth building in an extra day. So if if it's if it's even like a moderate size board, and your boss is like, hey, when when can you have this to me? The minimum amount of time is tomorrow, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And I put it this way is you will start getting those my first rev works boards if you start doing this. Exactly. Yeah. So 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 to kind of recap, there's there's uh for any board, I think it's good to have a rest day and a cleanup day for your for your layout. If you can build in that third day of like a review day, I, I understand that sounds like a lot. It's like three full days there. But if you can have all of those, your success like okay, what's 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 worse? Having a board that that comes in with problems or spending three extra days on the project. Uh, to me, I think the three days, if you can afford it, it's totally worth yeah. it. So look at your components and the difficulty of the components. So just total them up and then find your difficult ones, the ones that require a lot of effort. Build time for all of those. Build extra time for uh, for layers, for duplication, and then your rest, cleanup, and review days. I think that's, in my mind, that's starting to build out like a little bit of a template for estimating your project time. Uh, I've been trying to get better at this because I've been bad at it in the past. And this most recent project, I estimated to within a day. I got it one day later than I said I was going to get it. And uh, and so I was like, okay, I feel like I'm I'm starting to get more of a feel of this. Just you know, after doing a you know few tens or even a hundred boards or whatever, like I've got an idea for for what this is taking now. I wonder if that would be an interesting project to run is a like stop go timer, right? Mm. And maybe you collect that information we just talked about, like components, maybe figure out a way to do complexity. I don't know what that means. May, pin count times density or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just coming up with some some number, um, maybe like individual nets would be one of them. Uh, how many layers, et cetera, et cetera. Board size, overall size, and then so you punch those stuff in, and then like have a start stop timer, so you can have like a start for your schematic, and then you can hit done when you're done with your schematic, or and then you can add more, of course, like for, if it takes multiple days or multiple sessions, but like kind of like crowdsource that hmm. so you can so we can start getting like an estimation for that I, I i like how this is sort of actually what's funny is this kind of goes hand in hand with the chip fab stuff we were talking about where it's like we're just you know tweak one variable and see how much time yeah that, see how much that, time that, 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 to, that or, or what the impact of like which which one's which one is more like changing complexity or just raw number of parts? Which one had more of an impact on total yeah. time? Cause just like, I mean, that'd be useful for, it's actually a good thing is actually my boards going forward. I'm going to start recording that. Cause yeah. I have no idea on my end. Um, you just do it till it's done, right? Do it till it's done. Yeah. <laughs> or you fall asleep. <laughs> Estimating project time is so hard. And, and they always say, you know, like, overestimate but a lot of times i want to please so i accidentally underestimate and then in, it ends up being a lot of sorries and i don't like doing that i'd rather just be like no this is going to take me two weeks and be confident in it and at the end of two weeks i'm like here you go here i you would go. so much rather like it seem like a long time and deliver on time than promise shorter and have to be like well it's not ready yet so yeah, yeah. there's that, that, that uh, so um, hop on our Slack channel. If anyone has any insight on this, if 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 anyone has that like secret sauce, as here's here's what your way of estimating project time is, and it doesn't have to be in related in relation to PCB layout. It's just that's what I've done recently, and I have some data on it. So that, uh, but 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 yeah, if you have any any uh, insight or wisdom on that, I'd love to hear about it. So jump on our Slack channel, and that is macrofab.com/slash/slack. So, and that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. Take it easy.
Later, everyone. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading or listening live to our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or no better ways to estimate project time, because I have no idea, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack. I think I said that like 30 seconds ago. And our live stream is at 7 o'clock Central, 7 o'clock p.m. Central Time on Tuesday at twitch.tv slash macrofab. How long did that take? And almost a little over an hour.